Hi, beer friends. Welcome back to Brews with Broads. I'm your host, Hannah Keim. Boy, are you all in for a treat with this week's guest, Megan Wilson. Megan is the Chief Operating Officer at Torch and Crown Brewing Company in downtown Manhattan, Manhattan's only production brewery, in fact. I had the best time talking to Megan about her road from the world of finance to the world of beer, the initially steep learning curve that came along with jumping industries, and the agility that she and her team have displayed throughout the pandemic. I was so inspired to hear how she developed the trust of her team through transparency, humility, and never being afraid to ask questions. Don't worry, we had some laughs too. I'll let Megan tell you about her beef with possums and her vast karaoke repertoire. So without further ado, here is my chat with Torch and Crown's Megan Wilson. Megan Wilson, welcome to Brews with Broads. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Well, first of all, as we always do, I like to start by cracking whatever beverage we all brought. All right. All right, ready? Oh, yeah. I think I sprayed my. my <laughs> Oops. Sorry. Okay. What are, you, what are we working with here? I have the KCBC Innerboro Collab Taco Wednesday or Pilsner. Yum. I really liked it. It's like, I found it kind of zesty almost. I actually, I feel like a little bit of an ass kisser. But I do have the <laughs> Torch and Crown King Elizabeth, <laughs> which, first of all, is a barley wine for those of you who don't know, which I, A, is like not my go-to, especially for like, it's four in the afternoon right now. <laughs> but it has this cat on here. And I'm a crazy cat lady, so. I love him. I'm so glad we could celebrate him. <laughs> is this a real cat? It's a real cat. It's a um, over over the summer, uh, we adopted uh, three cats uh, from a hoarding situation. Actually, <gasps> so they they roam our uh, just the warehouse side. They don't really venture over into the production side. But yeah, this male cat came to us named Elizabeth, and you know he fit he fits it. It's great. Uh, he has such a funny little personality, and we thought it'd be you know, kind of fun to celebrate him on the beer. I think we had seen like sometimes barley wines, especially like traditional English ones, I've been referred to as like Elizabethan ales. So, you know, it just kind of stuck and <laughs> we really gentrified him. Uh, I mean, yeah, you, I think ev everyone, I need you all to go to Google or your chosen uh, internet search platform because yeah, we've got this cat who's like, he is definitely a little mangy looking. Mm -hmm. He's got some eye boogers. Yeah. But he has like a very full, he's in full regalia. And anyway, that was my, you know, some people like choose wine bottles by the, uh, yeah, yeah. purely by the label. <laughs> For me, this was that. Amazing. Well, cheers. Yay. Yeah. Cheers. Mm, ooh, wow. Okay. Well, shit. <laughs> Again, it's 11 something percent. It's 4 p.m. We're getting after it. Okay, great. So enough about this cat, although I could record a full <laughs> podcast about this cat. But yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. Um, but before we get into like, you know, your beer story, I want to know about you as a human. Where are you from? You know, where'd you go to school? Your biggest fear? That one's just kidding. That one's actually, interestingly, or at least jokingly covered in my work bio, strangely enough. I'll, I'll go into it. Uh, but, you know, so I grew up in New Jersey, uh, only about, you know, a little over an hour outside the city, but pretty removed, um, you know, in that it was probably like the edge of where people, for the most part, didn't have too many parents commuting to the city, but but mine did. 
So I grew up, I had a working mom and a stay-at-home dad. We have that in common. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. So that was one of those things that I, I didn't know was weird until other people told me it was weird. I'm sure you had similar experiences. But yeah. So, you know, I grew up like kind of tangential. Like I would visit the city occasionally and, but, you know, really fell in love with New York City and, but wanted to figured I'd end up there after college, but wanted to go somewhere else and, but, but still check out another city. Uh, so I went to uh, Baltimore. Uh, I went to Johns Hopkins and I love Baltimore. Great city, you know, actually is involved somewhat in my, my beer story for sure. After college, I moved right to, to the city uh, for the, you know, my first seven years or so were uh, working in finance but always in operations. So my whole career has been in operations, just (laughs) took a pretty sizable jump from an industry perspective about two years ago. And that's when I joined uh, the beer world. Amazing. So you alluded to your beer journey starting in Baltimore. So take us through. Strangely enough, I would say like I partially Baltimore, partially Italy, as weird as that is. But but even before that, a little bit, um, my parents were always like, into like alcohol, both beer, wine, like really big. Uh, my mom's a huge wine lover. My dad's always been into like mostly dark beers, but have always been into craft for as long as I can remember. So when I was a kid, I even had like my own like mini like shot glass size beer glass and wine glass. So I could always taste what my parents were having. So like, I've really been drinking beer and wine for a long time. <laughs> but you know, it wasn't until college that I really obviously started exploring that more and like early college you know, it's a little throwaway. It's, you know, a lot of Natty Bow and, you know, no hate towards Natty Bow, but, you know, it kind of grows from there. Uh, so from as far as Baltimore's perspective, um, not too far from campus, there's this little brew pub called the Brewer's Art. And it was, it's a Belgian, primarily Belgian style beers. Um, and that was really my first exposure to Belgian beers in generally, but just also just craft on that type of, you know, really small scale, but, you know, really invest in the recipes and not necessarily trying to appeal to a large audience, obviously. Like I think their, their largest distro was like a, uh, an Abbey Brown maybe, you know, but it got decent distro around Baltimore. So, you know, there was, they had this pretty solid exposure and it, it, part of it too, is they just had built a really cool brand. Like, you know, if you just wanted like kind of like a dive bar ass experience, they had a basement where you could drink beers and have burgers, or they had an upstairs where there was a fancy dining room and they did pairings and other stuff like that. So they just really curated interesting experiences made really interesting beers, you know, on a small scale and, you know, really just committed to, you know, what they're, what they were about. And I just thought that was really cool. And that was, you know, kind of my first exposure to, you know, craft beer, but also beer as hospitality uh, in a lot of senses. And that was big. And then the other thing for me, I studied abroad in Italy uh, during my junior year, which obviously drank a lot of wine and got exposure to that. But The other thing, and I know this is pretty quintessential, but uh, for a lot of people, but just having uh, Guinness in Europe, uh, it just like really, you know, hit me that I was like, you know, I can, I can get by, I can drink a lot of these and really. It hits different. It hits different. different. So, so all of that got me really, you know, interested primarily as a consumer. I, at that point, I didn't really consider going into the industry in any way. I didn't really know how to or how I would if I was going to. 
Um, but it was something I always stayed tangentially involved in. And whenever I traveled, would love to hit up breweries and, you know, really enjoy, you know, especially like my family's into it. So we would trade bottles and stuff whenever we would go home. So yeah, it seems like a pretty natural progression. And I love the idea of beer and hospitality, how they are inextricably linked. Like it helps you clearly, especially with your experience in school, like to enjoy a product so much more when not only like, you know, where it came from, but you, there's like a whole experience built around it. And I, it is interesting. The idea of like Belgian style as an entry level, because I feel like it's definitely more complex than like a lot of the kind of American craft beer, that market. It's just like, obviously has such a rich history. So I love that. Like that was your jumping off point. For sure. It is, it is a weird spot. And you know, (laughs) And, you know, I can't say I always appreciated it for, for the complexity. You know, I remember like a couple of times I'd be like, just order the triple because, you know, you're in college. Right. Well, yeah, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> right. But yeah, I just thought that there, were, there was a lot of tradition there, but they were also really doing a lot of interesting stuff that was truly them. And, you know, they're, they're still kicking. Um, oh, that's great. That's amazing. And so you came after school, you came to the city and started immediately working in operations and finance. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, shortly after I did that was actually when, you know, I met John, who's one of the founders of Torch and Crown and, you know, how I eventually seven years down the road from there ended up in the industry. Um, Both of our first jobs out of college, we ended up working um, together. Um, I was on the operations side and I was supporting him um, on the trading desk. And, you know, even back then he was telling me how he was going to open a brewery. You know, so I was just like, okay, cool, sure. You know, and it's funny, even his now wife, like the first time they met, he also told her that and they met when they were like 18. And she was like, yeah, sure. And he's like, no, no, actually, really. And, you know, (laughs) fast forward. (laughs) But, you know, so I think it's always been on the horizon for them. They've been talking about it forever. But, uh, you know, we both kind of went our separate ways, but still in finance for, for a while. And I bopped around a bit. And my last finance job, I was actually doing operational due diligence, uh, which is basically going on site at head funds and other like asset funds and evaluating their operational practices, their, their compliance, legal, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's around when, when John approached me about coming on board to potentially run operations for, you know, the new brewery, um, that he was building with Joe, they were trying to obviously open a tap room in Manhattan, but it also just fairly recently, uh, bought a large production facility in a bankruptcy auction. And that was kind of a little bit of, you know, run before you uh, walk kind of situation of just kind of walking into, you know, a 20,000 square foot facility before trying to open a brewery and restaurant type tap room situation. So kind of just jumped in from day one, you know, just kind of having those conversations. I mean, we talked over a couple of months, but the good thing was like going in, you know, they knew where I was coming from, knew what experience I had, that I obviously had the operational background and the stuff like that and had seen how all of these other companies ran their business, talked with, you know, COOs, compliance officers, legal officers, everything of all of these companies, very different sort of company. But, you know, there's a lot of tangents to the extent of 
very heavily regulated industries and that sort of stuff. So I figured that there was a lot that I could pull over and I was also willing to learn the rest. And the great part was, you know, they knew where I was coming from. So they were willing to work with me to get me up that learning curve. Right. And so you came on board, they were in the process of getting the the space in, you said in the Bronx? So yeah, they had had that for about six months at the time I joined. So they had been running that for a bit, um, but we're all, uh, about to start launching the Torch and Crown brand. Because initially it was just contract only out of the Bronx facility for about six months or so. And then I joined October, 2018. And we launched Torch and Crown, the brand, our first beers in January, 2019. Oh, wow. That's pretty, that feels quick. What was the learning curve like for you? Like on, <laughs> um, you know, there was some stuff that was obvious, like, you know, from day one of, of sort of things that we would need, that'd be tangential across like, okay, well, we need to, you know, build a procedures manual. We need to make sure we have an employee manual and have all that sort of stuff. But like being able to actually write those things and, and be involved in that process without ever having brewed personally is obviously huge, right? And very difficult. So, you know, I was handed a lot of books and I asked more questions <laughs> than I can, you know, even count or think of some, I'm sure twice, three times, whatever, you know, so I, I think it definitely took a while, right? But uh, I learned from the questions I'm observing. I think people picked that up pretty quickly that I wasn't just asking something to ask it. And I didn't have any shame in asking any questions, you know? So yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's a huge process. And, you know, two years in, I'm still learning something every single day. Of course. I mean, honestly, I would, I would hope that we could all be in positions like that where we could learn every single day because once you know everything then it's boring right oh totally yeah no I could never do anything like that I've like always drifted to things that have steep learning curves because you know I love that process I love learning more I love getting more in depth and even when things are changing constantly like there's you know that just keeps it fun entertaining what's the point if you're not you know exactly yeah the challenge to um remain agile I did obviously read your work bio as it says on there like you make shit happen yeah like even if I if I don't know an answer to a question that somebody comes to me I'm not just gonna say I don't know I will say I don't know if I don't know it but then I will either figure out who does know the question find a way for them to get that information themselves ideally I'd rather you know people be able to work through it themselves but I'm never gonna let just somebody just walk away that you know that ask a question there's 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 a way to get to that answer and figuring that out is you know part of why I'm there and what I'm doing and exactly it's a, it's a funny way to say it you know and they're all a little jokey bows but yeah and that I'm afraid of possums yes can we we let's dive into that you're you're deeply afraid of possums What's happening there? Sure, like that that long long ago time when there was everybody just had one computer per household and it was just the desktop and it was probably in your finished basement if you had one. Absolutely, and you had to like wait for your mom to get off the phone so you could get on the internet. Exactly. One of those type of long ago scenarios. When I was a kid, I was on the computer and there was this like window well above the computer. And it was at night and this possum just came up and it's like beady red eyes staring at me, just flashing its teeth and its ugly tail at me. I, I know like everyone tells me they're completely harmless and actually good, but I just, I've ever since, and it would just always only come around when I was there. This wasn't a one-time thing. And then 
older brothers being older brothers. My brother would torment me with it and made green savers, the pictures of possums. It was the whole thing. You know, he really had that annoying older brother down. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He nailed it. I mean, you gave him you gave him a uh, fuel for the fire, it seems, but you know, it's specific and I like that. That's important to know just generally. Don't yeah. if you visit Torch and Crown, don't bring your pet possum. <laughs> Leave it at home. Yep. <laughs> when that brings me to, you know, you mentioned that you had the production facility and then the process of opening a you brew in Soho, right? We will be. So we have a 10 barrel system in Soho. We are in the finishing process of getting that up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll probably be, I would say, like end of Q1, early Q2 of next year, we'll be brewing there. Uh, so, yeah, so a 10 barrel system, through vessel, we've got a uh, number of 10 barrel fermenters and then also some 30s on the main floor and some uh, serving tanks. That'll connect right into the draft system. So that'll be super fun. Back to simpler times. Take me through the process on your end and just in general of opening up the restaurant. And because I know the the restaurant itself opened during the pandemic, right? Right. Yeah. Talk to me about opening it up. And it's the only production brewery in Manhattan, which is amazing. Yeah. So take me through. It's one of those things that we knew going in was obviously super ambitious. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we're the only production brewery in Manhattan. You know, several people have come to us since and have been like asking for advice and whatever. And, you know, the first advice is don't, but (laughs) here's what we did. Um, I mean, I think it's just one of those situations, like as progressive as New York City is and you try to bring something completely, and it's not even completely new, right? I mean, it's not all that long ago that there were other production breweries in Manhattan. But, uh, you know, something relatively new or recent, if it's not in the last 10 years, did it really happen, right? It's very difficult to convince people that that new is a good thing, you know, when it's coming, especially in neighborhoods like Soho that are pretty gentrified, honestly, um, you know, and pretty... condensed in terms of, you know, there's a pretty significant population there and, you know, a lot of foot traffic, and a lot of things, but the area of Soho we're in, I think has a lot of development coming to it. So it really shouldn't be that crazy, but, you know, so we went through the process. I think we signed that lease around when I joined. So I would say October, 2018 is when we first signed the lease. And at the time we were thinking summer 2019 was our opening, obviously, you know, a little over a full year later is when we finally opened. I mean, you know what they say, construction always runs on time. Yeah, no, I think it was one of those things where it's like Murphy's Law. That definitely, you know, applied to more or less everything, you know, along with the situation, just in construction delays and, you know, all of the permitting took longer than it needed to. And, you know, I know you were saying go back to pre-coronavirus times, but coronavirus exacerbated everything, you know, even more, obviously, um, like all of our tanks got delayed and we got actually further ahead in the construction than when we should have had the tanks coming in. So then we had to knock down some of the construction to fit all of the tanks in. And the fact that we were getting all the tanks in during this time, there was so many uh, construction projects like much bigger ones going on around the city because everything was, you know, why not do that when the city shut down, right? So then trying to get quotes for people to do some of the things we needed them to do was impossible. So we ended up 
doing all of the rigging for all of our tanks to get them in and downstairs, like across multiple levels ourselves. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So it's like uh, Joe and his dad basically more or less created their own rigging company. And we figured from now on, they've learned enough that they could probably <laughs> get some pretty serious quotes. A side business of the business. Because <laughs> this doesn't take up enough time, right? <laughs> yeah, just if you need a hobby. And then the licensing was was pretty much a mess too. We got fought pretty much every step of the way by the community board, you know, wanting more control over it and having similar rights that they have for regular liquor licenses. But obviously, a manufacturing license is different. They don't know the nuances of it, and they shouldn't have oversight of it, which is why the law was written that way. But you know those type of people feel differently, right? Like, why shouldn't I have control over these sorts of things? So that was always, you know, that was a hurdle we were pushing up to, uh, up against, you know, for much of the time too. See, this just goes to show that like, you know, I come from the front of house service side. I know what goes on and what has to happen, like once the doors are open and butts are in the seats, but I wouldn't have thought of any of those things you're talking about. Yeah. A lot of what I do is, is the unsexy side of things. <laughs> Make sure we have the data we need and it's stored in the right place and the right policies and procedures and, you know, all of the stuff that, that makes things run on the back end. Right. Which is obviously like where your history working in finance and like corporate America. I don't know. I'm a bartender and an actor. So like, I don't know. These are fancy people things to me. But yeah, you, you know what I mean? I, I own suits. I haven't worn them in the past two years, but I own suits. She's got suits, people. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I, I think to like the naked ear, the comparison of finance to brewing brewery might not feel like a straight line. But hearing you explain all of this, it, it makes sense. It makes- sense. It's still definitely not a straight line, but it worked for me. You know, it aligned way more of my interests, you know? I mean, as much as, you know, I was good at that job and I liked aspects of it for sure, but, you know, I, I couldn't tell you I was passionate about it or anything. You know, it was just, it was what I did. Right. And it afforded me the opportunity to do things I was passionate about, but none of those were actually my work or my career, you know? So mm-hmm. um, it's allowed me to better align that, you know? So that's been a positive. It's been a lot of work, but at the, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I feel better about the work. I feel like I've had more hand in, you know, what's going on and you more directly see the, the impact that you have. When you were working in finance, did you have any, like, what did your beer life look like? I mean, just as, you know, as a consumer, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I've always, when, since I've lived in this city, I've always lived in Manhattan. It was mostly going to beer bars. And then like, occasionally I'd make the weekend trips, you know, out to Brooklyn and Queens and actually checking out and visiting all of the breweries, which I love to do, but it always just felt like you know, a weekend activity for me, like this was always like a little bit of a trek. And so that was another reason why I really bought into John's vision when he reached out to me. I was like, this would have been really cool. I would have been here after work, like every day if I could have been, you know. What was that vision as he pitched it to you that hooked you? Yeah, well, I guess part of it was that it wasn't the first time he had in a sense, pitched it to me. So that was huge. Like, this is the same vision I had heard about seven years before. I mean, to be honest, the first time he he mentioned hiring me and bringing me on, I, I laughed. I, like, got a big <laughs> kick out of it. <laughs> laughed in his face a little bit. But, uh, you know, I took some, I took a lot of time. I asked a ton of questions. But, you know, I just thought it was such a really 
neat idea. I thought it was a cool concept, you know, something I had always been looking for myself as, you know, somebody who was interested in beer, but living in Manhattan and, you know, just wanting the opportunity to actually, you know, be able to go to a brewery on a Monday night after work and just have a beer um, without it being a production just really appealed to me. And then just the opportunity, like sort of what I was saying before of just having more say and, and autonomy over how to really just shape the company from the beginning just seemed was a really attractive um, prospect for me, even just generally, you know, beer excluded, and then obviously bringing the beer in. I was like, that'd be a really cool thing to learn about and get involved in. It's something I really love already as a consumer. You know, let's see if I can, you know, learn to love it on the other side of things and, you know, get involved. Like it took, it was like a three month process. We probably had like three or four meetings, but, you know, got more and more convinced as it went along. And, He lured you in. Lured me in, yeah. Have you gotten your hands in on the brewing process at all? Oh, I mean, a little bit here and there. Definitely helped you out with some fruiting. I definitely did significant fruited sourdough where it just got covered and drenched. You know, it's just like various things. I've done a lot on the the canning line. I've done a little bit on the brewing process, but you're really, really not all that much, to be completely honest. But I mean, especially the first year, it was a little bit of all hands on deck, you know, just getting involved with things is a way to learn about it in a lot of senses too. So I've done a lot of the stuff that the guys on the team are doing at least once or twice, if not more than that. So I've at least like some exposure, you know, to, to what it means to do that, how long it takes to do something, you know, what the potential concerns and risks are, you know, even if I don't actually know the intricacies of actually making some good work. <laughs> Listen, I'm not I'm not there either. You know, I heard you speak on a panel for the Beers Without Beards Festival and it was all women in leadership positions. You don't see a lot of women in the operational side and in the like higher ups of breweries in the decision making. And so I'm interested if you feel like there are any challenges that you've come up against particularly as a woman yeah I mean the the biggest one for me off the bat and you know I'm sure you know my gender played a role in it to a certain extent but was also I feel like it's an industry that you know people get into it really because they are passionate about it and then if you are you know that a little bit of that outsider coming in to to a management position, you know, without having worked your way up, there is even that extra threshold that you really have to jump over to really earn the respect of the team, you know, actually be somebody that they're willing to come to, you know, with their questions, with their issues and and have them trust that you'll get them the answer. Um, And I think that was a big hurdle for me was just, and part of that was, you know, just never saying that I knew something when I didn't. You know, I think I, I gain a lot of respect pretty quickly for that. Like I would, I'm always willing to say if I don't know something because you can cause a lot of problems that way and you can lose respect pretty quickly if you start messing with that sort of thing. And then just, you know, being open to learning from the guys, asking a lot of questions. I think people saw that, you know, I was able to absorb that information and and use it to to make good decisions and to help them, you know, kind of get through with what they were doing. And then also allowed them to demonstrate to me, you know, that they really knew what they were talking about. Cause I wasn't just telling them what to do. It was more like, but why are you doing this? And and how is that, you know, going to help us make better beer? And it kind of helped them to grow in their positions, help them to be teachers and leaders to a certain extent, 
And I, I think that's really what was my biggest hurdle, but I think has also helped me um, in the manager role of just like the team, you know, now to a certain extent knows that even if I don't know the answer to every question, I'll be able to help them get there and, and that they trust me to be able to do that even without having the subject matter expertise that they should have that I don't need to have as long as I trust they'll do what they need to do and they know why they're doing it. That makes sense. It absolutely does. I think you hit on the main thing about it, which is trust. As a leader and as a manager, it earns people's trust to not only admit when you're wrong, admit when you don't know something and trust that they are going to feed you the knowledge you need. And I think it also demonstrates strength and integrity because I know particularly entering into a male-dominated industry such as beer, in certain experiences, I felt vulnerable to ask the questions because I'm the same way that like I'm a big questioner and like I want to know every detail of what you're doing and like why are you telling me to do this? And I think oftentimes I have felt like asking those questions makes me look vulnerable and makes me look like I don't know what I'm doing, but it's the ability to like push past that to realize that on the other side is going to be like a closer bond of trust between you and whoever you're working with. Right. And there is, it's a little twofold for me. So I was the first woman to join the team, you know, and was the only woman for a very long time. Part of that for me is like, I don't mind being the person who, who is confrontational. I'm willing to speak up. I'm willing to, to ask whatever question I need. I don't, like I said earlier, I don't really have any shame in it. You know, I'm willing to, to dig down and, you know, really have those conversations. So hopefully I've broken down some of those walls so that the next person that comes in, the next woman doesn't have to jump as many of those hurdles, you know, cause I, I don't think it should have to be something like you don't have to be that type of personality to be a woman in this industry and you shouldn't. So hopefully by doing that myself, creating enough of a culture that it won't be as, as much of a challenge or, or as much of a struggle, you know, for the next person or the person after after that. I love that. Setting the standard for future generations, as it were, like, so they don't have to be the controversial one. But that brings up a question that I ask all my guests, you know, obviously, this is a podcast about women in beer. But on the flip side, I feel like a lot of women who work in beer kind of get tokenized in a way and get asked a lot like about being a woman in beer with like heavy quotation marks, you know, just like talking about being a lady doctor. Do you ever get tired of that? Or do you ever feel tokenized by that? Um, There's definitely aspects of it, you know, for sure that rear up from time to time. I mean, but as long as it's serving the purpose like what I was saying before if by being that person or by being fitting that role or whatever it makes the culture more acceptable for people down the road or if it like like you said knocks over a few hurdles or opens a couple doors like I don't really mind filling that role I'm probably going to call it out if it seems a little misogynistic or you know fitting that like a little too much to a type but you know like you said, if it's serving a purpose, if it, but if it's just like, you know, like totally tokenizing or like outwardly misogynistic, I'm just going to (laughs) like call it out, sidestep it, move on, you know, kind of thing. So it depends, you know, it really depends on the situation and I guess the the intent, but like you said, like we're just trying to, to work through it. I mean, I think the industry's come a long way, but a lot of that was just, peeling back the misogyny that already just inherently existed. So now that we've like jumped that hurdle, like, great. So where it's not outwardly misogynistic, it's starting to become more welcoming, but like, then how do we like 
make the culture more important so that it isn't such a token thing. It's not so weird. It's not so strange. Like it, the hurdles don't have to exist for everyone. I think that's the big question that like, you know, I'm trying to, to do what I can and, and what we already talked about a little bit at Torch and Crown, but then like, how do we as an industry make it more inclusive? I think those answers aren't easy. I, I think we have a long way to go still, you know, even just, I talk with Chris, our marketing director all the time, like, how do you, you know, market to, to women? And it's not an easy question to answer, right? Because we're, we're not just one person. There's so many things it means to be a woman. Like, you know, I don't have all the answers, certainly, but, you know, if it takes getting tokenized a little bit to, to try at least make the questions get asked, even if we don't have the answers, I think is an important step from here. I'm just nodding my head so hard. I'm going to like hit it on my microphone. But yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that like as far as representation goes and like appealing to more diverse beer drinkers, like no demographic is a monolith. You can't just like try to write an Instagram post that appeals to like women beer drinkers or beer drinkers of color. Like the way I'm taking what you're saying is the way you do that is to like have those people like yourself in the room. Exactly. Having those discussions as opposed to like some sorry, cisgendered white dude, try to theorize, which how could they? Because that's not their experience, right? The problem for them too is it's not their experience, but they need to be a huge part of the solution, right? Exactly. So yeah, yeah, like you said, it's it's getting those people in the door. It's asking them their opinions, asking for their feedback. But yeah, I mean, the, the very least you can do in the starting point should be not excluding anyone, like just based on your branding, your your imagery, your text, whatever. And then how do you figure out to, to make sure that your message appeals to everyone? And I think that's by continuing to iterate and talk with all of those different people, get feedback, continue to work through it. And it's, it's a tough road. But yeah, like you said, it's it's not an easy question to answer. There's no world in which you're going to appeal to everyone. But No. If you try to appeal to everyone, you're going to appeal to no one, right? Like you have to be specific to your brand or what you're trying to do. But to, to try to make it inclusive and like invite everyone in is the goal. Exactly. Wow. We got deep there. <laughs> I know. Well, good. I'm glad. It's That's always the goal. Possum talk and then a little bit of depth just sprinkled it. <laughs> so now that, you know, you are open as a restaurant, how is that going? Um, I, think, I think it's been great, you know, obviously with an asterisk. It's been as good as probably we could have expected given coronavirus, right? There's been really great community reception, great feedback. Um, you know, as weird as it was initially with the community board, we've gotten great feedback from people that actually live in the community, you know, from what I can tell, actually, like even people stopping by from neighboring buildings and coming around all the time, you know, but uh, I think part of that too was with the weird, the weird opportunity that the coronavirus situation gave us was that even though we weren't open as the full restaurant back in March or so we started doing um, like pickups like direct to consumer pickups and deliveries um, out of the Soho location so since we had never really had a taproom location or any customer facing business before that that really allowed us to have the face time with our customers that we had never had before so, you know, that really got our faces in front of the community in a way we hadn't had the opportunity to do. And I think, you know, that was a good basis for when we finally were able to open. 
our team down there has been absolutely phenomenal in getting everything running on a super short time frame. You know, we basically got our license approved and, you know, opened within five days, I think. You know, they had already started doing some training and, you know, everybody has put in so much time and effort to really make that place, you know, what we were really envisioning. Um, so that part has been phenomenal. The feedback's been great. Um, but there's aspects of it that I, you know, I kind of can't wait to, to see how it plays out when a year from now, I don't know, I don't know when the world goes back to normal, but, or what that no, new normal will look like, whatever it is. But, you know, there's aspects of it. Like I'd love for it to feel a little bit more like a tap room, like a community environment. It's really hard to do that when tables are spaced out and everybody's separate and whatever. I, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that experience, but I'm still, you know, it it felt still super satisfying to finally get there since we had been working on it for so long at that point. Absolutely. I think it's really cool. The pivot that you spoke about that like, okay, yes, mm -hmm. you were obviously in it to open a restaurant and tap room, but the direct consumer stuff and like you're delivering now. Are you delivering? Yeah, we're still doing that. Um, we do same day delivery. Um, as long as you order by 3 p.m., you'll have it by 8 p.m. So we've been doing that. We basically built we built the platform in 72 hours and had it launched, I think, on, on St. Patrick's Day. It was our first day of uh, all the way back March 17th. So we were one of the very first in the city to, to launch our direct-to-consumer. Uh, so that, that was a huge um, <laughs> undertaking not something you would normally launch that quickly you'd go through a lot of beta testing and so whatever you know how it works but it was basically like launching a new business overnight and for a period of time there I mean it was all of us just driving around the city you know I mean it was a great way for us to keep our our sales team occupied but also employed you know we all did a lot of things we probably never saw ourselves doing like pre-coronavirus, but, you know, you adapt to the situation. I spent most of my weekends down there selling, you know, beer over the counter, you know, to a lot of different people. So, you know, it was just a cool way to, to really get to know the community and whatever else. And, but it was weird. I never, having worked in finance for so long, no, no world would I have ever seen myself as an essential employee, <laughs> you know, like quarantine for like a couple weeks back in March. But, you know, since then I've, you know, I've been going into work, that part hasn't felt too different, the rest of the world. So yeah, I mean, it was it was a really interesting, strange scenario. We but we picked it up really well. And, it, and we've iterated on it substantially. That is amazing. And that's so ambitious, especially days after like right on the heels of everything shutting down as the like operations person. Was that like mostly, it sounds like you're mostly your purview. I'd, I'd love to claim ownership over that, but no, that was almost entire. Uh, Chris, our, our marketing director developed the whole platform. He built out the website and, and the infrastructure behind that. So yeah, I've, I've mostly, my biggest assistance there has primarily been in, you know, occasionally being the person selling the beer or driving it around the city. Um, but that's, yeah, I give all the credit there to our sales and marketing team that have really delivered on that. And, and interestingly enough, it was something that was always kind of in our business model. We wanted to really try and find new ways of, of bringing our product to our customers. So that was always on the horizon. We've been really, really interested and have done some um, like office deliveries and stuff like that. You know, just stuff that we wanted to really just 
given we're in Manhattan and Manhattan's a very want it now kind of place. Uh, so, you know, like even outside of coronavirus, I think there is a world for, you know, direct consumer deliveries and it's not, it shouldn't just exist whatever our radius is around the restaurant. Like I, I see a world for this long after that's done, you know, who knows what the compliance of that is, but that's for a later day. You know, I, I think it's something, especially now, people have come to expect and have come to really appreciate. And, you know, I don't see that going away. I don't necessarily see it being exactly the same scale either. So, it, you know, we'll see what happens, what plays out, how that kind of iterates. But I, I imagine that's something we'll try and continue after all of this is said and done, whenever that is. <laughs> whenever that is. Yeah, I do feel like there have obviously been a lot of horrible things to come out mm -hmm. of this time, but a lot of really amazing innovations and pivots and like you said, like new avenues that you maybe wouldn't have thought would be so successful for your business that are now like a huge part of it. And I think, you know, maybe it's partially just me having been in the industry, but I feel like the sentiment of so many people now is just really supporting your local businesses and small businesses and you know, I've certainly taken that to heart myself and, you know, make sure I'm very conscious about where my money goes. You know, I think a lot of people are really adopting that mentality more so than ever before. You know, as long as we can continue to tap into that, even after this is all said and done, you know, I think there could be real benefit from that. Absolutely. I think there's been a huge shift in that. What is the best way, like how can people best support Torch and Crown? What we were just talking about, I mean, honestly, just, just order beer. We'll drop it off at your door. It's pretty, it's pretty great. You know, if you want some merch too, we can all wrap that all into one nice little package. It's great. What could be better? Even if you give us some note to write on the bag or want us to say something. We've had people ask us to say the funniest things. But, uh, but you know, like we're, we're all there for the personalization of it, um, all of that. The other really great thing, um, you know, that we've been doing recently, we're calling torch tastings. But basically, you know, we'll ship you eight pack, usually four different beers um, to each. And then, you know, we'll lead you through a tasting or give you a history of beer or kind of whatever you want us to do. And we'll, we'll kind of like, MC your Zoom party, whatever you want it to be, or entertain your clients or whatever. So that's been a really like fun opportunity, you know, that we've kind of launched in this strange environment. Is there anything like in the beer world that you're most excited about right now? Or a a big change that you'd want to see in the industry right now? I don't know if this necessarily totally answers your question. One of the coolest things for me that's been about um, like coronavirus is us kind of establishing the women in beer slack channel. Like I, you know, there it's become so much of a community and a really supportive group. Um, you know, I feel like <laughs> I've talked to some of the people in that group and like us collectively more than a lot of people in the last like nine months. So that's been like a really cool aspect. I think, uh, you know, What's going on in our industry, at least in the city, is just like we have such a good network in New York. And I think having that support also helps in, you know, establishing all the stuff we were talking about before. Like if we ever run into issues, encounter challenges, like any of those token or misogynistic questions, issues, creeps, whatever, there's somewhere to, to either vent about it, discuss, you know, really, or, or just get support where we need it. And that's been, I think 
I, I've really enjoyed it. I, you know, I think it's been big for, for a lot of people. So, you know, I don't know if that's big in the beer world more generally, but I think, you know, in our smaller community in New York, I think it's been a really neat thing, you know, about this weird time in our industry and everyone's industry and everyone's world. <laughs> I'm absolutely with you. I have one more question that relates to your work bio. In it, you mention <laughs> that you love um, karaoke, particularly uh, show tunes and or early 2000s rap songs. <laughs> Can we talk about that real quick? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think early 2000s me was like really into some like Eminem and Dr. Dre and like some of my favorite. I just love pulling it out, uh, like all of the ridiculous, really fast rap songs. And then like just the transition of that into doing like Adele or some like show tune is super fun for, you know, just show that range. You belt it out. You got to show range. Well, when this is all over, we're going to go to K-Town and we'll go into like one of those little rooms and just belt it the fuck out. (laughs) Megan, I'm so glad I got to talk to you and get to know you. I always finish out every episode with a, some quick fire questions Low stakes, low pressure. Here we go. Okay. Most overrated beer style. Can I say like a milkshake IPA? Yes, you can. Amen. Okay. This is very important. Cake or pie? Pie. Follow up, just because I'm obsessed with dessert. A la mode? Usually not, actually. I love it. A pie purist. Most underrated beer style? Probably cream ale. I love the cream ale we did. Yeah, you never see a cream ale. You never see them, but damn, are they good. Yeah, no cream involved, as it turns out. What do your friends come to you for? Vacation travel ideas and tips. Oh, I love that. If I had a second career, I'd be planning vacations. I like weirdly love that. That's amazing. This is a little more front of house related, but I ask it anyway. What's your favorite thing you've ever like overheard behind the bar or maybe at the beer bar? This one wasn't even a good overheard, but the other day I was just wearing, I used to play soccer and I was wearing a soccer t-shirt and I was at the laundromat and this guy came up to me and he's like, oh, do you play soccer? And I was like, well, I, I did. And he's like, Cause you look like you could kick the shit out of somebody. <laughs> what? That's your that's your line. Okay. Thank you, sir. Excuse me. I have to go get my uh my whites out of the dryer. Pardon. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. What is the last show that you binged and loved? Probably the Queen's Gambit. It was so good. It was good. It took me a second, but wow. I love that they didn't make her end up with a man at the end. Like which is so you know quintessentially boring and annoying that that's you know expected what is your desert island beer like if you had to pick one not an easy question probably a weird one but i'll kind of stick with it for now maybe like a you know a solid like pilsner or kel it's like a little old school like easy drinking tasty literally it means original it's the classic yeah can't go wrong great if you could get on a plane right now, COVID notwithstanding, and go anywhere, where would you go? You know, I feel like that in some ways changes to me on a daily basis. Uh, but um, the big trip, my friends and I were saying, if everything by this time next year is resolved and we can travel again, we're going to do um, a trip to Lapland in Finland. And so it's like super northern Finland, Arctic Circle, just kind of Aurora Borealis, like winter wonderland kind of thing. Do, you know, snowmobiles, like 
reindeer farms. I don't know. It just sounded like it was just out there enough. That's on the list. Why the fuck not? Lapland. I love that. It changes by the week, you know? (sighs) Well, Megan Wilson, head of operations at Torch and Crown, karaoke superstar. Will you take us out with a toast? Your favorite toast, your go-to toast, any type of toast. It's how I like to end. Throw back to the beginning. We'll go in a little Italian chin chin. Chin chin. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much. That Megan contains multitudes. Now that so many of us are getting vaccinated, I have a feeling her inbox is going to be blowing up with requests for her travel agenting skills. I really loved hearing Megan's perspective on being a woman in a position of leadership at a major New York City brewery and how she strives to knock down the hurdles standing in the way of underrepresented populations in our industry. Talking to her provided a fascinating window into the operational challenges of opening Manhattan's only production brewery. So when you go visit Torch and Crown down in Soho and enjoy a glass of their almost famous IPA with their amazing fried chicken sandwich, which I did just a few weeks ago, highly recommend, think about all that it took for Megan and her team to get there. Thank you so much to Megan for taking the time to talk to me back in the winter. I do hope you make it to Lapland this year, my friend. (laughs) Thank you, as always, to Megan Vagala for our amazing music and to Sabrina Rain for our gorgeous graphic. It's truly my favorite thing. Thank you, most of all, to you. Yes, I'm talking to you for listening. Without you, I wouldn't be here. Please continue to review, subscribe, like, share, all of those words we say on the internet these days. And go ahead and give me a follow on Instagram at broads. I will be back next week with another installment of our Beer 101 Minisodes. So stay tuned for that. Stay hydrated, my friends. Bye.